Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 11. Starting with verse 1, we're going to take up Jesus' teaching on prayer, more specifically the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, and the parable of the importunate friend. Now, last audio in Luke chapter 10, we took up the parable of the Good Samaritan, we had Jesus sending out his 72 disciples in the Galilee, in the Judean ministry and receiving them back. So this is the context of where we are. We're down in Galilee near the beginning of his, excuse me, we're down in Judea near the beginning of his Judean ministry. Starting with Luke chapter 11, verse 1, he, Jesus, was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. Now, it's interesting that John taught his disciples how to pray. He probably just told him to repent, repent, repent. I repent, I repent, I repent. Because that was the theme of his ministry. But here, these disciples, the disciples probably saw Jesus praying. And so he said, well, Jesus, you're praying. I'd like to know how to pray. Now, this was not the only time that somebody asked Jesus this. In Matthew 6, 9 through 13, Jesus responded to a similar request up in Galilee at a different time. And he gave the Lord's Prayer. But this is at a different time. Now, the Lord's Prayer is... In this version, the second version is very similar to the first version. The Lord's Prayer, the first Lord's Prayer was part of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's not precisely the same as Luke's prayer, according to Adam Carr, but it's fairly close. Now, Jesus prayed on special occasions. Let's look at some scriptures where Jesus prayed. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened. So Jesus prayed when he was baptized at the River Jordan, baptized in water. When he chose the twelve, Luke 6, verse 12, during those days he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. He spent all night praying before he chose the twelve. In Gethsemane, before he was about to be crucified, Luke chapter 22, verse 41, then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray. Jesus' praying was a regular habit, Luke chapter 5, verse 16, yet he, Jesus, often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. Matthew 14:23. after dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Mark 1, 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and he was praying there. So Jesus often prayed quietly away from the crowds at nighttime at deserted places. Now, the disciples said, teach us how to pray. Now, the Lord's Prayer was a model prayer. It was not meant to be recited word for word in rote fashion. This is according to the NIV Study Bible. John Gill said the Lord's Prayer is not a strict form, so everybody agrees with that. It was just a pattern to help the disciples to avoid the vain repetitions of the heathen. And if you turn the Lord's Prayer into something that you mantra-like, repeat word for word, well, then basically you're doing the vain repetitions of the heathen, just like the heathen were. Now, John Gill says that if you do do that, there's nothing wrong with praying it exactly. And I put the caveat in there, as long as it doesn't become a dead ritual, which it can become very easy when you start repeating something word for word. I mean, how many times have we said the Lord's Prayer in a public, in the in the Christian South here in, in the Bible Belt? This is before the, the, the modern United States of Sodom and Gomorrah, when people would do that sort of thing without being called an Islamophobe or a homophobe. We pray this prayer all the time, but what happens after a while, you don't think about it anymore. It becomes a dead ritual. 
Jameson Fawcett Brown says this, Nevertheless, since the second form of it, that's the Judean form down here in Luke chapter 11, since the second form of it, the Lord's Prayer, varies considerably from the first, that's the Sermon on the Mount, Lord's Prayer up in Galilee, since those two vary considerably, Jameson Fawcett Brown says, I just finished saying it was not very considerable, it was a different, a slight difference, matter of opinion, I guess. Since those two vary considerably, and since no example of its actual use or express quotation of its phraseology occurs in the sequel of the New Testament, we are to guard against against a superstitious use of it. Well, hear, hear. Now, these model prayers were or forms of prayer were frequent among the Jews. Every public teacher gave one to his disciples, so this was not an unusual occurrence that Jesus was doing. Where is this that this disciple asked Jesus? We don't know. It follows after the story of Mary and Martha, which we took up at the end of chapter 10, where Jesus was last with Mary and Martha, but we don't know that this event occurred just after that. It was a, it's a speculation. Now, this disciple who saw Jesus praying, probably saw Jesus praying, wanted to know how to pray for himself. He probably had not heard the Sermon on the Mount yet. Jameson Fawcett and Brown speculate that he wouldn't have asked for teaching on prayer if he'd heard the Sermon on the Mount. Well, maybe so. But anyway, he asked, verse 2, He, Jesus, said to them, to the disciples listening, Whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy, your kingdom come. Honored as holy, the NIV says hallowed, which is a fancy old-fashioned English term for be honored as holy. The Holman Christian Study Bible translates that as honored as holy. Hallowed. And hallowed, honored as holy, basically means sanctified. Holy means sanctified. It's a, it's a synonym. And sanctified is a very simple English definition. It means separated from the world, dedicated to God. You can say that over and over again. You'll never go wrong. So we set God's name apart from the world above all else. That's why it's so disgusting. Oh, my God. Everybody saying, oh, my God. No, that's not honoring God's name as holy. OMG. It's disgusting how many people say that all the time. They, 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 they're atheists or they're worldlings and materialists or whatever they are, and yet they're constantly calling out God's name. We're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to honor God's name as holy. Now, let me give you a fancy theological definition of that word holy from Adam Clark. Agiatheto, agiadzo, given the Greek words. From alpha negative and gay, the earth, another word, an A means no earth or away from the earth, a thing separated from the earth or from earthly purposes and employments, in other words, separated from the world or separated from the earth. As the word sanctified or hallowed in scripture is frequently used for the consecration of a thing or person to a holy use or office, as the Levites, firstborn, tabernacle, temple, and their utensils, which were all set apart from every earthly, common, or profane use and employed wholly in the service of God, so the divine majesty may be said to be sanctified by us in analogy to these things, viz. when we separate him from and in our conceptions and desires, exalt him above earth and all things, separated from the earth, dedicated to God. Now, this is called the Lord's Prayer, but it's really not the Lord's Prayer. It cannot be proved that he ever used it himself. The petitions, the preface, and the conclusion of this, of this prayer are manifestly of Jewish origin, so it really should be the disciples' prayer, but we call it the Lord's Prayer because he taught the disciples how to use it. According to John Gill, Jesus took the most proper and pertinent, pertinent petitions then in use and made some alterations for the better. Now, the kingdom that was supposed to become, there are two options of one that it can be. It could be the future consummation of the kingdom, i.e. future to us. Now, not talking to the people back in Jesus' time, but future to us now in the 21st century. 
thy kingdom come. That would be the final consummation of Jesus' kingdom. This is according to the NIV Study Bible and Adam Clark. That's the first option. Or it could be the church now. In other words, we look back to the time that the, Jesus was asking them to pray that prayer, and they and let's say that Peter prayed, Thy kingdom come. Well, he's talking about the church, because that's when the kingdom came, the church. That's the beginning of the kingdom, the, the initial manifestation of the kingdom. So that could have been what Peter was supposed to be praying for. That's perfectly reasonable. We tend to think it from our point of view, so we tend to think it's talking about the future kingdom, but it might have been the, the early disciples praying for the initial manifestation of the kingdom, the church. Or it could be both of those, both the church and the final consummation of the church. John Gill believes this. Here's a quote from him. Quote, The kingdom of heaven, which was at a hand, nay, had taken place, though as yet was not very visible, and which is spiritual in the hearts of God's people, Jews and Gentiles, and which will appear exceeding glorious in the latter day, and at last be swallowed up in the ultimate glory. There's your yet and already and not yet aspect of the kingdom that theologians love to talk about. Luke 11, verse 3. Jesus continues with his instructions on how to pray. Give us each day our daily bread. Now, the Greek in this passage is extremely, extraordinarily difficult to translate. And there are several options as to what is meant here. I've got, let's see, four, four options. But before I go into those options, the NIV Study Bible says that bread is referring to daily necessities, not necessarily just bread, but just the daily stuff you need to get by to eat. There's a textual variant here. Uh, John Gill says it could be our bread for tomorrow. And there's where the ambiguity comes in, because what does it mean, our bread for tomorrow or our daily bread? Well, here's some options. The most common option, the most common way this is interpreted, is that this phrase, give us this day our daily bread, means all the necessities we need for the rest of our life. In other words, every day. Every day goes by, give the stuff we need for every day until the day we die. Give us each day our daily bread as we go. Now, the NIV translates this verse, give us each day our daily bread. The Holman Christian Study Bible translates it, give us each day our daily bread. And the King James says, give us day by day our daily bread. That, and those translations give you the idea of every day that we live, give us our daily bread. Now, that's a wonderful idea, and of course Jesus will do that. And if you didn't have this verse to prove that, there's plenty of other ones to prove it. My God shall supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. Don't take any thought for worry over more than one day at a time. So, I mean, it's a, it's a true statement if, if that's the proper way to translate it. Some people, option number two, say that give us our daily, this, our daily bread or give us our bread for tomorrow. If we take the variant, our bread for tomorrow means all the necessities we need for the next 24-hour period, for tomorrow. Give us everything we need for tomorrow. The problem with that translation is that it seems to contradict Matthew 6.34, which says, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. If you're praying for the bread for tomorrow, then you're worried about tomorrow, it sounds like. So, I tend to think that's not the right answer. Now, it could be translated this way, third option, all the necessities we need for this 24-hour period. I'm going to read you a theological justification for that from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Quote, The compound word here rendered daily, give us our daily bread, occurs nowhere else, either in classical or sacred Greek, and so must be interpreted by the analogy of its component parts. But on this, critics are divided. To those who would understand it to mean, give us this day the bread of tomorrow, as if the sense thus slid into that of Luke, give us day by day, 
It may be answered that the sense thus brought out is scarcely intelligible, if not something less, that the expression bread of tomorrow is not the same as bread from day to day, and that so understood it would seem to contradict Matthew 6.34, as I just said. So bread of tomorrow, daily bread, they don't seem to really fit together is what Jameson Fawcett's saying here. The great majority of the best critics, taking the word to be compounded of usia, substance, or being, understanding by it the staff of life, or the essence of life, the bread of subsistence, and so the sense will be, give us this day the bread which this day's necessities require. Give us the essence of life, in other words, give us what we need today to stay alive. Well, that's very similar to give us what we need today and tomorrow and the next day all the way to the end of time, or give us what we need today. It's a, it's a minor difference. The idea is still there. God will give you what you need. Now, here's another option. Give us the bread for, of tomorrow. That, some claim, refers to the bread we will eat in the Lord's Supper in the consummated kingdom. Eric Svensson, the, the Ph.D. in theology who went to my seminary and whom I've talked to on the phone and whose book I've read on the Lord's Supper, he states that this is what it is in his opinion. The bread we will eat in the Lord's Supper. Give us this day that bread in the future that we're going to eat with you in the future. In other words, this is a call for the coming of the kingdom, which fits with the idea, thy kingdom come, your kingdom come, which is right in this prayer, and your kingdom come and let us eat the bread that we're going to eat with you in the Lord's Supper and the consummation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's a nice idea, but I, I throw something else at, out at you too, is I believe that Jesus did come to eat spiritually with the disciples. And he said, I, uh, I will eat it with you when I come. Well, he came at Pentecost. I, do, I have trouble believing he's referring to a physical eating of the Lord's Supper with millions and millions and millions of Christians at the last day. Although, I mean, that's possible because that's a, a world we don't know too much about. It just seems to me that he wouldn't skip over the whole church age while his disciples eating the Lord's Supper without him being there spiritually. Just like God was with the elders of Moses on Mount Sinai eating, eating with them spiritually, even though he doesn't have a body. So I don't know whether that interpretation by Dr. Svensson is correct or not, but it's an interesting idea. At any rate, it doesn't hurt to pray for your daily provision. Let's now move on to verse 4 in Luke chapter 11. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us, and do not bring us into temptation. By the way, I forgot to mention this whole discussion in Luke here, which goes from verse 1, Luke chapter 11, verse 1, down to verse 14, uh, 13. There are no parallel passages. passages. This, the only account we see is here in Luke. Now, Jesus says here in verse 4, And forgive us our sins. Now, in his version of the Lord's Prayer, the Sermon on the Mount, Lord's Prayer up in Galilee, he said, forgive us our debts or our trespasses. Matthew six twelve has debts. But the meaning is the same as sins because when you trespass against God or when you have a debt and you owe something to God, that's the same thing as a sin when you owe something to God, namely your life because you sin before God. And so Jesus says, forgive us our sins. Same thing as forgive us our debts because a sin is a debt to God. For we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. So Jesus is making a parallel. By golly, I forgave you. You forgive other people who screwed you over. Sort of a easy doctrine to teach, hard to apply, but we're supposed to do it. Now, the next question is, is what kind of forgiveness are we talking about? I mean, in one sense, Jesus has already forgiven us our sins when we accept him as our Savior and as our Lord and we repent of our sins and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and all that. We become regenerated. 
Well, Jesus forgives you for your sins, past, present, and future. Well, this is probably referring to daily sins. In other words, forgive us our daily sins and by restoring fellowship to us because of our sins temporarily pushing ourselves away from the presence of God. It doesn't mean forgive us our sins so we don't so we won't go to hell. But it means forgive us our sins so we can restore our fellowship with you. Just like you're married to your wife, you, you offend your wife, you transgress against your wife in some way. Well, it doesn't mean you're not married. It just means you need, so she'll talk to you again, you need to ask her forgiveness. And she needs to forgive your sins so she can talk to you again. This idea that Jesus here is talking about daily forgiveness of sins and not your salvation, regeneration, forgiveness of sins is is supported by the NIB Study Bible, which says that this forgiveness, the purpose is to restore broken communion. Our sins have already been eternally forgiven. All that's in the NIV Study Bible, so I'm not making this up. So our salvation isn't dependent upon whether we forgive someone properly or not. So this is the way I I used to read this first. Oh, we've got to forgive people, and if we don't, we're going to go to hell. We're going to lose our salvation, perhaps. No, that's not what it means. It means just like we forgive other people's sins and, and restore our fellowship with them, likewise we need to do the same with Jesus and restore our fellowship with him. Last part of the verse, and do not bring us into temptation. Now, I've always read this verse with my eyebrows raised because it didn't make sense. Why would God bring us into temptation? So why do I need to pray that he not do it? He's not even going to think about doing something like that. Why would he bring me into temptation? Well, the Pope, the current Pope, who is probably one of the worst Popes since the Renaissance, Pope Francis, has said this, and, and I'm agreeing with him in this case. I don't agree with him on much else. He says that the new version should be translated this way, that the English should be translated this way, that this is a bad translation, do not lead us into trans- temptation. It should be, do not let us fall into temptation. Francis, Pope Francis says it makes no sense for God to be hypo, even hypothetically pushing us into temptation, and it doesn't. So don't let us fall into temptation, I think, is much closer to Jesus' meaning. And the temptation there can be trial, by the way, just external bad things happening to you, or it could be seduction to sin. Either one, the word is ambiguous. Either way, we want to be delivered from those things. Now, obviously, we want to be not led into being seduced by evil. But now, as far as being led into temptation in the sense of being led into a trial, sometimes Jesus does lead you into a trial to accomplish his purposes. We all know that. Anybody who's been a Christian for a while knows that there are trials in the Christian life. Read the book of Job. So I don't think that's the sense being used here. I think the sense is, don't let us fall into seductions to evil. Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 6. He, Jesus, also said to them, the disciples listening to him, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, let me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. Well, midnight is a heck of a time to go knocking on somebody's door to get some bread. Well, the friend that came to the knocker was on a journey. The Greek there is is ex, ex hodu, out of the road or out of his way, as Adam Clark translates it. This, according to Adam Clark, shows that the friend was lost and, and belayed on his journey. And he's wandering around at night, and he comes to a friend's house, and, he's, and he needs something to eat, and he's starving to death. So the situation was dire, and that's why the knocker got out in the middle of the night and started banging on his friend's door. It was necessary. Remember, oriental hospitality is a big deal back then, and he was having trouble showing hospitality to his lost friend. Verse 11, Chapter 11, verses 7 and 8. Then he, that's the friend inside sleeping with his children, then he will answer from inside and say, Don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I have gone to bed. Now, the two circumstances make it hard for him to get out of bed. One is, he's already locked the door. 
That means he's got to get up, go across, and unlock the door, which is a lot of trouble. But also his children are in bed with him. They slept, the children slept with the parents then, which, by the way, is a great idea. My kids did for two or three years. I would highly recommend it. Learn something from the East. Quit listening to Dr. Spock and all this Western nonsense that you read. I remember uh, James Dobson, who normally I agree with 99% of the time, one time got on the radio and said, if you let your kids sleep with them, they might become a homosexual. Nonsense. It just shows even smart people can say dumb things sometimes. But at any rate, this man had children sleeping with him, and he would have to wake them up and go answer the door. So that's why I said I can't get up to give you anything. Well, actually, if you know you really were a friend, if, if it was my friend that did it, I would have gotten out of bed. I would have woken my kids up. I said, I'm sorry, kids. i got to get out of bed. i got to go answer the door. I would have done it. I think you would have, too. But this man was a little bit churlish, a little bit grumpy. He wouldn't do it. Verse 8, I tell you, Jesus continues, even though he won't get up and give the knocker, him, anything because he, the knocker, is his friend, yet because of his friend's persistence, the knocker's persistence, Knock, 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 knock. Because of his friend's persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, of course, what's the point of all this? If you want to pray, you keep on praying and don't quit when you don't get an immediate answer. Now, God's not a God of the genie bottle. He's not a genie that comes out of the bottle when you rub it and he says, Your wish is my command. And then you say, Thank you, genie. Do something for me. God is not your personal servant. He's the God of the universe. He loves to do things for you, but he also loves you to show faith in him. And faith is the essence of things not seen. And sometimes you pray for something and you cannot see the answer. And the answer is to believe in him and keep on praying. Now, and he'll answer it eventually, just like that man got up and answered the door. Assuming that you do not pray amiss, Luke. Let's see, where is that? I don't have the verse in front of me. Well, in, in James, I'm sorry, somewhere in James it says, you, you have not because you ask not and because you pray amiss. So if you don't, this parable is saying the opposite of asking not is knock, 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 keep on knocking. But he also, in James, adds, if you pray amiss, you're not going to get your answer. Pray for something stupid. Give me a Rolex. Give me a Rolls Royce. You know, kind of stupidity, like Creflo Dollar might be teaching or something. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about persistent, godly prayer in the will of God. There's another parable that's very similar to this, the parable of the unjust judge, which is in Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. Luke 18, 1 says this, He, Jesus, then told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not become discouraged. And it is so easy to be discouraged. I'm praying for the United States of America not to be judged because of its incredible rebellion against God. As doctors are now performing child abuse on kids to switch their genders, while they're before they're 10 years old and all this other nonsense. We live in a morally chaotic world. Western civilization is totally apostate and headed for the ash heap. And I pray against that, and I don't see much response. I hope that under the scene, behind the scenes and under the surface that there are revival fires starting to flicker and people starting to get disgusted with what they see. I hope that, but I can't see it. But I'm still, I'm not going to stop praying. Just keep right on praying. If a churlish, self-indulgent man, insensitive to friendship like this man in the parable, if he can be won over by persistence, won over by persistence, well then, a fortiori, so can God be won over. Because God is not churlish. He's not self-indulgent. He's not insensitive to friendship. You can win him over by prayer. Verses 9 through 10 in Luke 11. So I say to you, keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep searching and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks receives, and the one who searches finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus loves to answer prayer. God, your Father, loves to answer prayer. By the way, this exact same teaching was in the, uh, given up in Galilee earlier, Matthew 7, verses 7 through 8. Jesus says this, Keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep searching and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who searches finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Exactly the same teaching. Knock, 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 knock. Keep on knocking. This is assuming, of course, that the asking was not done amiss. Here's the verse, James 4, 3 I mentioned earlier. You ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. So don't ask with bad motives. You know, this idea of God not answering prayer until we keep on asking him, that's really an illustration of faith. I think I mentioned this, faith is the essence of not seen and you don't see it. Well, that's how he builds your, your faith. You say, God, I've prayed for so long. And Jesus says, do you believe me? Do you believe me? Do you believe that I've got it all in my hands and I'm going to work it out? Do you believe I'm the sovereign God that made the universe and am totally unconcerned about your pitiful circumstances that you find yourself in? I'm not worried about it. I'm going to take care of your enemies, and I'm going to take care of your poverty, and I'm going to take care of your sickness or whatever, or the persecution that comes on you. Even if you die, you're going to go to heaven. I'm going to raise you up. I'm not worried about you. So why are you worried? Keep on praying. Luke 11, verse 11 through 12. Again, we're talking about prayer. Jesus says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Now the idea here is, Jesus is not going to give you something bad when you ask for something good. And a lot of times we think that about God because we're sinners and we're guilty. We, we haven't really understood that Jesus has taken our guilt away. And so we think, well, no, God doesn't love me. He's not... He's going to punish me. God's going to get me. He's going to get me for all the garbage I've done in my life. He doesn't care. He can't possibly love me. I remember witnessing somebody one time. She had committed a lot of sexual sin, and she had two-timed a couple of people. I mean, you know, she typical way people live these days. And But the difference was that she knew she was guilty about it. I've never seen anybody so guilt-ridden. She kept saying, Nobody's, God can never love me. He'll never love me. No man will ever love me. never saw somebody so beaten down with guilt. Well, Jesus has forgiven us for that, and if you ask him for forgiveness, he'll give it to you. If you ask him for anything good, he'll give it to you. So keep asking. Now, the idea if a son asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. The idea is that a bad father would hear his son ask for a fish, and then he'd give him a snake, because a snake looks somewhat like a fish. Both of them kind of slippery. <laughs> and, of course, the idea would be repulsive, at least to us in the West. I do think that in China, people eat snakes all the time. I don't think a thing about it, so maybe... This verse would have to be contextualized when translated. I don't know what the Chinese version has here, but I imagine the average Chinese person, that wouldn't bother them a bit. But if you're from the West, you'd say, oh, that's disgusting. Ask for a fish and got a snake. What kind of a father is that? How about if I ask for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? I guess a scorpion is kind of balled up like an egg, sticks his tail up in there. Again, Chinese people won't have a problem with this, at least in the south of China where they'll eat anything. I've seen nice scorpions served up on, on plates in Hong Kong restaurants with a little tail sticking up in the air. It's a delicacy. But that's not the idea. The idea, if you ask for an egg, something good to eat, a scorpion, oh, you can't eat that, it'll sting you to death, unless you're from southern China. Now, many people speculate how a scorpion could look like an egg. I don't, I don't know if anybody knows exactly, but I'm sure the idea is there that a scorpion is somehow related to the looks of an egg. Same thing with snake and fish. A fish, especially an eel-like fish, does look like a snake. I'm not exactly sure how a scorpion looks like an egg. And I, I haven't followed up on those speculations that Adam Clark mentions. 
How many of you will ask for stone? Ask for bread? Well, this is Matthew on a different occasion. Matthew adds something here. Matthew 7, 9 through 10. What man among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Now, a loaf of bread does look like a stone. So that's the idea. You ask for something good, instead you get a cheap facsimile. So, no, God's not like that. Evil, Even evil fathers don't treat their kids like that. And God's a good father. He's not going to treat us that way. So ask him for what you need. Verse 13 in chapter 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now on a different occasion in Matthew 7:11, the verse is repeated exactly except for the word Holy Spirit. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? In Matthew 7:11, Jesus says, How much more will your Father in Heaven give good things to those who ask Him? The NIV has good gifts to those who ask Him. So that basically the idea is this, ask for the gifts of the Holy Spirit, as according to the NIV Study Bible. So, it must be proper to ask for spiritual gifts, despite what cessationists say. Oh, you can't speak in tongues. That died out in the first century. Hey, I, I asked for spiritual gifts. I've asked for prophecy. I've asked for healing. I've asked for demon exorcism. I've asked for tongues. And I can't think of any other spiritual gift. Nothing wrong with asking for spiritual gifts. But, of course, there's other things the Holy Spirit does besides those spiritual gifts. There's all kinds of spiritual gifts. We wouldn't ask for salvation, though, because you wouldn't say, "Holy, I want the Holy Spirit to get me saved. You say, I believe in Jesus and he's forgiven me for my sins and the Holy Spirit regenerates you, but you don't directly ask the Holy Spirit. At least, I'm not aware of that happening in the New Testament. It certainly is not happening in current evangelistic practice, I'll say that. So I suspect this is things that Christians, after they are saved, asking the Holy Spirit to give them gifts that the Holy Spirit might give. Nothing wrong with doing this. I do think it's a little bit strange that he said this before Pentecost, because that was when, they, after Pentecost, they did ask for the Holy Spirit. Acts Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 19, you can see this where they ask for the Holy Spirit directly. To get filled with the Holy Spirit, receive the Holy Spirit. Unless you're a cessationist, of course. You don't believe in all that stuff. Honestly, I feel sorry if you're a cessationist. It's the tragedy. You're letting all the charismaniac excesses drive your reading of the scriptures. We shouldn't ever, ever throw the baby out with the bathwater. We should never react to something. We should look at the Bible and see what it says. Ladies and gentlemen, I am finished with Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. Jesus is teaching on prayer in the Lord's Prayer and important prayer with the parable of the friend locked up in his house at midnight. We'll start at verse 14 in the next video when Jesus is accused of driving out demons by Beelzebub. I hope you enjoyed this audio and we'll see you in the next one.